One, two, three. Welcome to Three Song Stories, home of the song story, which we define as memories and stories brought forth by hearing songs that have become bound to times and places and people and emotions from our lives. Thanks for listening. I'm Mike Canary. Our guest this week is John Shane. John's a veteran singer-songwriter who combines improvised Piedmont blues with bluegrass swing and ragtime. He grew up in Haverhill, Massachusetts, where his family's business was a small textile dyeing company, and he worked in the factory for them during the summers throughout his teens. It was around that time he began to discover his love of American roots music and songwriting. He says he was specifically drawn to the narratives about regular people and themes of social justice. John studied American history at Duke University, and while there, continued his musical journey by studying with jazz professor Paul Jeffrey and learning the Piedmont blues tradition firsthand by playing in Big Boy Henry's backing band. In 1989, he founded the Chapel Hill-based folk rock group Flyin' Mice and their spin-off group Wake. They released four CDs and played up and down the East Coast until the late 90s. He then went solo and has since released 10 albums of his own folk blues compositions. He was the 2019 winner of the International Blues Challenge in the Solo Duo category. His most recent solo disc, Gettin' Handy with the Blues, a tribute to the legacy of W.C. Handy, was released in 2018 and is coming out as a music book published by Mel Bay. He was in town the week before Hurricane Ian made landfall here in southwest Florida to play a gig at the Americana Community Music Association in Fort Myers, so we had him come by the studio to talk to us about his life and his music and his three song stories. Hello there, John. Shane, how are you? Doing all right. How about you? I'm doing very well. Welcome to Southwest Florida. I'm happy to be here. Have you been here before? I have, yep. I've been in Fort Myers uh, probably half dozen times. Playing for ACMA or similar shows? Yeah, usually ACMA or a house concert or something like that. Um, How much of what you do is playing these kinds of house concerts these days? Well, if you had asked me that question before the pandemic, you'd have gotten a different answer, right? Right. Explain what that means. Yeah, well, because the house concerts are really intimate. You get close, everybody's around, and many of the audience members are older. And so when the pandemic hit, that was like the first thing that was like, hey, we're not going to be doing this for a while, you know? Yeah. Um, but I play a lot of house concerts um, as part of my touring and things. It, they're great shows. They're always, you know, interactive with p- people right there. And, and they're um, attentive. Yeah. And they usually they char- charge like 20 bucks. And so then the artist gets it all. Yeah. You play to the same crowd that you got nothing in a bar and make a thousand dollars, you know? Yeah. It's yeah. pretty sweet. So, um, okay. So what were you listening to on your way here today? Well, I came from Tampa, and so I was listening to the great community radio station that they've got way up there, That's, right? That's um, um, WMNF. MNF, yes, yep, yes. Yep, they have. you ever have, played any gigs for them? It seems like I could see you in I've their studio on or air. on their uh, Skipper Smokehouse scene or something. Yeah, no, I, I've done um, some on-air stuff there before playing. Last night I was in Tampa. I played at the New World Brewery. Okay. Yeah, it's a fun place, good place, good so people. So you listened to them as far as you could, and then what? Um... I did not go directly to another NPR station. At that point, I put on a CD, and I think it was an old Beth Orton CD mm. from like the late 90s or something. Um, I've just, you know, so often I go out on the road, I listen to nothing but radio. Um, 
but then you you hit these holes, mm-hmm. <laughs> these <laughs> geographical and so holes. By radio, right? you mean FM terrestrial radio? Oh yeah. Yeah, yeah, yeah. You know, I mean, I know that everybody else is listening to XM Sirius or they're listening to their Spotify playlists and whatever. But I, I uh, like an old man that I am, I guess, still love the radio, you know, because every, everywhere you go, you hear the local news too. You yeah. Know? Um, um, you said you put a CD and how many CDs do you carry in the car with you? Yeah, so there's a carrying case with probably like 25 or 30 okay. CDs in so there. So you are old school. Yeah, you know. I'm the same I, way. <laughs> I like it. I, when I travel with my daughter, though, you know, she's 20, I always say, you know, play us what you're listening to. Right. And she brings and, – and that's how I find out about new stuff all the time. Right. And she has giant ears. She listens to everything. Yeah, so. I have a 17-year-old. Similar situation. Yeah. Um, so you were born in Haverhill, Massachusetts? Is that how you say it? Haverhill. Okay, yeah. That's why I said it so awkwardly, no, knowing I was 90% yeah, no. chance well, of being wrong. How do they wrong. say it here? There is a Haverhill in Florida, so right? So say it again. Haverhill. Haverhill. It's the, like it, Haverhill it's, Levine, it, like the musician. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. So there's it's <laughs> two syllables, <laughs> and you generally in Massachusetts you try to take out as many syllables as you can. Right. So you know, Worcester becomes Wista. Right. You know, things that have multiple uh, syllables get shortened, and uh, yeah, Haverhill is on the Merrimack River. Um, it was like an old industrial. Revolution town, you know, so about 40 miles north of Boston on the border of New Hampshire. And um, we were known for the shoe industry. Oh, right. Yeah. Cobblers. Well, that's what they call them. Yeah. They they had, <laughs> I think there was a time where there was something like 40 or 50 shoe factories in Haverhill. Hmm. And uh, Lawrence and Lowell, which were close by, they were like the mill towns, like, you know, making the textiles. Yeah, yeah. How would you characterize the musical background of your childhood there in Haverhill? <laughs> that was close. <laughs> You're getting closer. Well, you know, I've always thought that your musical background is really the music that your parents listened mm-hmm. to, you know. And um, my parents being born in the mid-1940s were children of rock and roll, basically. You know, my dad grew up uh, listening to rock and roll on the radio in 1955, 56, 57, mm-hmm. something like that, right? And um, so when I was two, three, four years old, before I could speak up and ask for my own radio station, right, we listened to the golden oldies is what the format was called. You, I'm sure you remember Absolutely. it. You've got a white hair in your beard too. Uh, yeah. You know? I have a gray hair in my beard. All the rest are white. <laughs> yeah, there you go. The, the, so the golden oldies, of course – was um, mostly 1950s music, but sprinkled in with some of the 60s music. And so we did hear, you know, like all the Motown stuff and all the uh, kind of cool Memphis Stax Volt stuff, I think, like Otis Redding or whatever, and uh, the Isley Brothers and, and things. And um, my dad was in a fraternity in the early 60s too, so he – that's the kind of stuff that he listened to, the same stuff they listened to in Animal House. Yeah. <laughs> you know? What's the earliest musical memory you can recall if we ask you to flash back? That's a really good question. I mean, there were – we used to also go – there were these classical concerts on the town green in Bradford, Mass., which is a part of Haverhill really, where I can kind of remember being a very, very tiny child, like probably – on a blanket with a little picnic listening to the band in the gazebo or whatever it was, you know, because New England had all these little town greens and things like that. 
so um but there was also there was quite a lot of Neil Diamond I remember back, <laughs> back, back in those days you know so we certainly heard them um the mod, the stuff that was actually new at the time that I was a kid that we listened to was probably Simon and Garfunkel and uh very late Beatles and Neil Diamond and you know the stuff that was on AM radio, right? Right. Um, so you're a musician now. Clearly, uh, were yeah. they being played? Instruments being played around you when you were a kid? Was that something that was part of sort of like your scene, your no. family scene, your friend scene? Not really. Well, so the first instrument I was really aware of was my dad had a beat up cornet in the closet, which is a trumpet of sorts, right? And so we used to try to blow into that and make noise, um, you know, and. The mouthpiece was disgusting smelling. You know, it was probably from the 1950s. And um, but then uh, started to understand more that there was this music that was played on guitars and things like that. And I remember hearing The Who playing Pinball Wizard, and that was like the first song where I made the connection. That's a guitar doing right, 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 that. And so um, we used to take out the tennis rackets and, you know, pretend I, I we, my brother and I, my brother is like uh, almost two years younger than me. And so we kind of did everything together and we played our tennis racket guitars to the, to pinball wizard. And then I would say it was around uh, fourth or fifth grade, my friend Fran he bought – he got an electric guitar for mm. Christmas or something and I'll never forget. It was a Univox, which is was a Japanese-made copy of a Mosrite, which was a weird electric guitar where the the horns of the cutaways were almost offset differently from the Fender. Huh. A very strange-looking guitar. He had that and a little Fender Champ amplifier, tube amp. They didn't – I don't think they had solid state – you know, whatever back then. And he learned how to play on it. And I, I was like, I need one of these. <laughs> you know, I need one of these. So I got a guitar um, as a rental. My parents weren't really sure. We're I was ready to commit. Stick with it, right? The Haverhill Music Center. And I rented this acoustic guitar. And the guy, the teacher, he asked me at the first lesson, what do you want to learn to play? And I was like, can you teach me dueling banjos? You know, because on your electric guitar, on the acoustic guitar, oh, it was acoustic. Oh, sorry, yeah, yeah. sorry, sorry. And he was like, "Yeah, we maybe got to learn a few things before then." Well, so then I took the guitar home, and um, it didn't last very long. My brother was chasing me around the house. We used to get into these kind of play fights all the time, and I had just seen the Happy Days episode where the Fonz traps a burglar in the closet by putting a chair underneath the doorknob. Uh-huh. Hey. Hey. <laughs> hey. So, uh, yeah, I did it with the guitar, stuck the guitar under the doorknob, and uh, it, let's say it didn't trap him. The door opened and the guitar broke in half. Rental. Rental. They were not happy. Parents weren't happy. So, I, again, in seventh grade, I asked, I'll be good. I'll, can I try again? You know, And so, again, they borrowed a guitar um, from a friend this time. And uh, at this time, it took. You know, So at age 12, I think, is when I started. Can you play dueling banjos today? Oh, I could play dueling 
banjos, doing mandolins, guitars, whatever you yeah, want. Yeah, exactly. yeah, you did it. <laughs> exactly, I did um, it. Okay, well, let's get to your first song, and then we'll get a little bit more into your life with music. All uh, right. We're going to do this Queen song first, right? Yeah, right, Bohemian Rhapsody. So what's the story? Well, there's several stories, but um, we absolutely loved this song as a family, as, as kids. My mother was not even big into rock and roll, um, but my dad was, and... Nobody knew what Queen looked like back then. We didn't know anything about Queen. We did not know the association with the word Queen, uh, you know, being that uh, Freddie Mercury was this or that. Or, you know, we just heard this song come out of the radio with this operatic sound and we fell in love with it. And every time it would come on the radio, we would turn it up. And so at some point, my brother and I, again, Ross, who was a little younger, we learned the song by just from listening on the radio. We're talking about what, 1974, 75? Yeah, I think it came out. Yeah, 75 is when Night at the Opera came out. Okay. So I was like seven and a half years old, the summer of Jaws, right? Yeah. Um, (laughs) And um, so Ross was like five years old. Um, I'm guessing we didn't get the words all correct. Um, But we would come downstairs when my parents had parties in our pajamas with feet on them, and we would perform Bohemian Rhapsody for this group of adults who must have been like either entertained or horrified. I'm How not sure. How could they not be entertained? I, I know. <laughs> and so we would do this. And um, I, I don't know. So so we remembered all the lyrics to the songs at, at that age. So then you got to flash forward to – Whoa, late 90s, something like that. We were on a family trip. Somebody had – one of my parents had turned some magical age. Maybe it was 60, 50. I don't know, something like that. And they took the family to Italy, right? And we were all – this is me, my wife, my brother, his girlfriend, my sister, my parents, all in a van, like a 10-passenger van, uh, trying to navigate the roads of Italy. And my brother started to have this feeling. It was like a pinched nerve in his chest or up here by his clavicle. And my mother, being the warrior that she was, convinced him that he was having a heart attack. And so we went into a hospital in Rome and had EKGs put on and everything like that. And eventually they found out he was just fine, right? But he felt terrible and we had like, you know, wasted three hours in Rome. So now we're driving down the uh, highway, wherever, going towards one of those little wine country areas. And Ross was just miserable. And so I was sitting in the front seat and I just started to sing, Mama. Just killed a man, you know, and started to sing the song. And then, you know, my mother started to join in. My father started to join in. But he was still in the back just miserable, right? I mean, he was like, you know, close to 30 at this time. And then we were just about to give it up, you know, when all of a sudden from the back seat we hear this, 
I see a little silhouette <laughs> of a man. <laughs> and it was him. And so then, and my mother was like, oh, Ross is feeling better. <laughs> so, so we ended up singing the whole thing like some kind of, a, you know, Wayne's World episode. Yeah, right? absolutely. Yeah. It's Wayne's World. <clears throat> so then flash forward again. My mother turned uh, 70 years old. And now my brother, who is in video and stuff, he says, we're going to do Bohemian Rhapsody as a family video and surprise my mother with it. Wow! And so everybody uh, in their different homes literally filmed themselves singing the different parts. And so – And you like multi-screened it yes, and everything? Yes, yes. Yeah. And so what we did was we got into the bathroom and shut off all the lights and did the four – you know, um, <laughs> face the faces face uh, 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 underlit by candles or something, right? And did that whole easy come, easy go. We, and um, when we sent it to her, um, you know, she was just, it was like the m- most touching thing, yeah. you know, to, to see Bohemian Rhapsody done one more time by her kids, you know. So. When was the last time you heard it? Oh, I don't listen to it too often. Yeah, yeah. You know, if it comes on the radio, I will listen to it, but I'm not listening to a lot of classic rock these well, days. Well, let's so. listen to it now. Yeah, let's, let's listen to it. imagine those stories. This is uh, John Shane's first song here on Three Song Stories today. It's Queen's Bohemian Rhapsody from their 1975 all-time classic album, if I do say so myself, A Night at the Opera. Oh, and I should also throw in that my dad and mom took me and Ross to Queen for my 10th birthday. Wow. My first concert. Wow. You know, I, I don't think I've ever listened to that song with headphones on before. With good headphones. And that's with a good. really good copy of that song. Like, I went out and found, like, a oh, okay. like, a, like a full flack rip of the album, blah, blah, yeah, blah. Yeah, I, um, I was hearing things in it, to be honest, that I'd never heard before. Uh-huh. Listening um, to it with the big speakers here uh, in this little recording booth, uh-huh. great. Especially when, like, <laughs> the... They sing like sight like the the sound yeah the stereo the, the panning yeah it's it's a, that album uh, night at the opera we had that on a track tape which is not the uh, best not necessarily uh, the fullest fidelity yeah exactly <laughs> but they had some other songs on that album there was one called the prophets song mm-hmm. where they panned these vocals I know exactly what you're talking you know about. I'm oh yeah left right I hear you it was like a round and they it, it was like tripped out this little boy's mind, you know. You know, it's nice to sit down. You know, it's a song we've all heard a million times, but it's nice to sit down sometimes and really just listen to it because it's, it is a masterpiece. It really is. I mean, it's like how do you – how could they surpass that? How really? do you dream that up? I'm like how do you – Why would you dream <laughs> yeah. that up, right? It's like the words – everything is just like it – you know, it just must have come out of space and landed in their laps. Did you ever actually look up what the lyrics are to see what it is you thought it was versus what Yeah, I mean, there's little things like I have to face the truth or something. And I think we used to say, um, we got to say it's true. Or like there's all sorts of words that we didn't know. And of course, uh, the kind of made up stuff in the middle, you know, is what are they really saying? You know, it's like, because I have seen those lyrics and it's, Pretty much gibberish, right? What's it like as a guitarist to, to listen closely to what Brian May's doing? Oh, it's that? fantastic. I mean, and especially like at that end when it goes, you know, the thing at the very end, it's like he, he's doing with his multi-tracking the guitar what the voices were doing earlier. It's like a symphony of electric guitar. Yeah. Um so I mean they they had to know exactly what they wanted to do. Um 
And I've heard, you know, well, Brian May's a genius anyways. He's an astrophysicist, yeah. right? I mean. He built his own guitar and plays it with a British penny. Yeah. Yeah. No, they, they – so we went to see Queen um, when I was 10 years old. The first – originally I wanted to see Kiss. But the only tickets that they had, they weren't coming to the Boston Garden. They were coming to the Providence Civic Center. Had to settle for Queen. Had to settle for Queen. Kiss. They were number two. Kiss was number one. Um, it was about a year later that really the Beatles and the Rolling Stones would have eclipsed them for me. But at age ten, you know, Kiss and Queen were pretty big, and we passed on the Kiss tickets because the only tickets they had were behind the stage. Uh, and behind the stage, you wouldn't you, see. You want to see Kiss? The lights. Right, the, and the faces and the, the whole, blood the, spitting the, the and things. the fire yeah. and you know all that. I eventually did see Kiss in my when I was like forty years old or something, and um, it was like terrible. You know, <laughs> <laughs> I think they played around here recently. Yeah, no, really within the last yeah. year. Well, they they do a farewell tour like every year, right? You know, mainly like it, he just screams a lot. You know, Paul Stanley, he's um. He can't talk to the audience. He has to. He has to yell it like that. You know, like. Uh, so, yeah. when did you start taking guitar seriously? Like right away, as soon as like you got that second guitar, you like really dove in, or did you just yeah. poke around for a while? No. Did you ever take lessons? Get I, lessons? I really, yeah, no, I took lessons. That was part of it. They weren't gonna. They weren't gonna let you just poke around. No, no, no. Yeah, got to do it. And so I took lessons. Um, with a guy named John Tavano. He was a classical guitar player in our area. And um, he got me started with the chords and things like that. But after um, two years, he was like, uh, um, at this point, you have to, if I'm going to do anything more with you, you got to start taking classical. And I said, but I want to play rock and roll. And he said, well, I can't do anything with you then. And I was like, well, okay. So yeah, you know, like <laughs> anyway, I got I got um an electric guitar when I turned 13. That's the the Jewish boy's ritual, you know, is uh you uh, here you are, you are a man, whatever, happy bar mitzvah, here is your electric guitar. <laughs> and uh and so yeah, my first guitar, the electric guitar, it, it was uh, some friends of my parents gave they chipped in and gave me this guitar and uh it had no name on it. That's like it, it wasn't even like it was a just a generic generic. It did not even have a it name. Just said electric guitar on the back. Yeah, right. <laughs> so I ended up selling it. I ended up trading it in and bought a used Fender Strat that I still have. Hmm. Um, they gave me sixty dollars in trade on that first guitar. Um, but I got right into it and I started taking lessons again in high school and um, joined the jazz band. Okay. And uh, these kids saw that electric guitar and they said, do you want to be in our band? I was like, well, I only knew a few chords, you know. And uh, these were older kids too. Yeah, yeah. Who like actually hung out with girls, you know. And uh, so I said, sure, I'll be in the band, you know. And I learned how to do a power chord, which kind of got me through most of the material they were doing. Was this the jazz band or this was a, no, th another th band? This was their band. This was what called – called? <sighs> It was called Positive Feedback. Okay. <laughs> <laughs> Rock and roll! <laughs> yeah, not exactly. It sounds like some kind of a new age thing. Yeah. <laughs> but at the time, we just heard the word feedback, you know. Um, I got kicked out of that band later in the year. Um, I think they were like, you know, why are we – why do we have this 
14 year old in the band, you know, when we're all 17 or whatever. So that's actually when I started to play, uh, I was like, I'm gonna make my own band, you know, and I uh, got together with this kid, John Miller, he was a drummer. And then we needed a vocalist. And um, so um, we ended up, my friend FJ Ventry uh, showed up for the practice. I didn't really know him that well at the time. And he was like, I'll sing, you know. And so he sang. And then my cousin was supposed to be the bass player. And the first practice, my cousin couldn't get a ride to the practice. And FJ borrowed my brother's bass and became the bass player. And, you know, now I, I still play with FJ. I was going to say, I've recognized that name yeah, yeah, yeah. up on you. I mean, I mean, yeah, it's amazing, right? Like he – we met was when he a we bass player 14. yet or was that no. just like, I'll play the bass Yeah, now. he was like, how do you do this? I said, I think it's tuned like a guitar. You know, just you play the lowest notes of the guitar and think about those as the bass. And he just launched into it and he, he, he learned to play the bass. And we were doing all sorts of music. We were, we were doing a mixture of like Wipeout and, you know, garage band stuff like You Really Got Me. You know, by the kinks. And this would have been uh, what is this like late seventies or early eighties? Early eighties. Okay. Yeah, but we were also doing or trying to do like some of the music of the day. Like we played the Clash and we played REM and we played uh, a tune by NXS oh. and you know whatever we could kind of figure out because there was no guitar tab. You know, yeah. there was no computer. <laughs> there was no if you if you were lucky and if the song was famous, you could maybe go to the music center and spend ten dollars on a music book, but we didn't have that money. Yeah, yeah. So we just lifted the needle and put it back and lifted the needle and just uh -huh. tried to figure it out. And we we got some of it wrong, but we it made us better musicians. Absolutely. Yeah. You know, we learned how to figure out songs. I mean we if we didn't know the real words, we made them up. <laughs> you know, it's pretty silly. I don't know what we sang when it was like a Billy Idol, like dancing with myself or something. We did that and it was like, I don't even know. Oh, 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 oh. You know, we just kind of mumble stuff and uh, we would play the high school dances and stuff. So. How many bands have you been in overall, like prior to you going solo? Well, okay. So – I know that's a good that's, – that's a – yeah. That, that may be a lot it's, of bands. It's, it's, it's really not that many. I mean because – I wanted to write songs and when you want to write songs, you've got to end up being the singer, right. you know, things like that. Um, I have sat in on lead guitar with other people's bands, that's for sure. But to say that I was in those bands, not right. not that many. So I went off to college. Oh, oh, so the band that we started though, the angry young men who got kicked out of the other band. Oh, yeah, yeah. It wasn't positive uh, oh, no, feedback it, it, anymore. It, it, it was, was called The Partisans. Oh, nice. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, yeah. we were we were angry. Wow. Yeah, <laughs> yeah. The Partisans. That's a grown-up name for a high well, school well, band. Then we found out there was a Partisans UK. You know, there was a punk band called The Partisans uh, in yeah. England. But when I got uh, to college, I joined some guys in – and gal uh, who played bass, uh, Dave Dave Myers on guitar and Chris Coward on bass. Who played the drums was this guy, Dave Regal. And um, we called ourselves the Blind Mice and we played fraternity parties and we played uh, like psychedelic stuff, like played the Grateful Dead. Did that precede the Flying Mice? Exactly. Okay. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. And we played so we played the Velvet Underground and we played a few originals, but it was really just this dirty psychedelic sound. I just 
you know how certain sounds, they have smells associated with them. And the sound of our band was the smell of malt liquor that had been like drying on a floor for a few days. Understood. Yeah, yeah. So getting something out of your system, were you with that band? (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, we we were just, you know, I don't know how much of it I can talk about right here. But that's okay. You know, we we did not take things too seriously. And um so then no, the flying mice began when the the next bass player, John Whitehead, he was also a Massachusetts guy, um, he uh and I started to play these duo shows, um, acoustic guitar and bass. Kind of like hot tuna, and um, we were, we we actually covered a lot of hot tuna and a lot of Taj Mahal, and it was just like acoustic blues, you know. And so we called ourselves the Flying Mice, so that people would kind of associate the mice part of it. Yeah, yeah, you know. And um, then that band got more serious. We got a drummer. We ended up as a four-piece kind of a rock band with a lot of uh, folk and blues and bluegrass influences, and. Um, we did pretty well. I mean, we toured for years and, you know, we didn't make a lot of money, but we I remember one year we did like 150 shows. How late how long until when were those bands playing? Yeah, so Flying Mice started in 89 and went till 96. Okay. And we toured all over the place. Um in Florida, we would have played in uh, Gainesville. Did you ever play Spirit of Swanee? Magfest. I listened to. Some was of your, it there then? Well, uh, Magfest was at Spirit Swanee in in Swanee County. Yeah, that Magfest, was Springfest back in the early nineties. Uh, no, uh, I didn't start going until the mid to late nineties. Oh yeah. So but I, I listened to some of your flying mice, and I was like, I could hear that at Magfest. It, it, totally, totally. <laughs> yeah. Um, we, you know, we didn't come down to Florida a lot of times before we broke up. We we would go up north to the Northeast. And we played a ton of towns that had colleges, you know, like in Virginia, North Carolina, South Carolina, um, like places like where uh, Boone, North Carolina. That's or my sister went to college. Appalachian. She went to Lee's McRae. Oh, Lee's McRae and Banner Elk. We Banner, played right in, up the road from Boone. We played in Banner Elk. <laughs> yeah. I mean, wherever young people congregated. She may at, have seen you then because she was there in the early 90s. You'll have to ask her. If, <laughs> we played a place called the Elk Rack. And, uh, okay, I'm going to ask You know, Megan. from Banner Elk. Um, but it was kind of like just this crappy sports bar. So we used to call it Elk Crack. You know, <laughs> but no, that that band, you know, we had the whole the truck and you know the big PA system we would cart around. It was it was a lot of work and and it was a lot of fun. Um, you mind if we listen to it a little? Flying mice. Got a song, yeah. I got sure. A which mice tune song. you got? Slow motion. Yeah. Oh my God, that is a hippie. Yeah. Hippie, hippie. That's, this is the one that made me think Magfest. <laughs> totally. I mean, this is even hippier than a lot of the other stuff we did. You can just see the young ladies dancing with their skirts a twirl, can't you? Oh, yeah. I remember we had this big CD release show, and um, it was about 400 people there dancing, and we had hired this well-known mandolin player, Tony Williamson, to join us on stage. He comes up after the show and he goes, he goes, I love playing with you guys. And I said, oh, you do? He said, oh, yeah, because you guys get great chicks. It's <laughs> 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 wonderful. Thank you. Um, OK, well, we'll get on to your solo work in a little bit, but let's do this next song story. 
Oh, yeah. So we're going to talk about Tom Petty a little Tom bit. Petty, who I love, who is who I've seen the most in terms of bands or musicians That's in my life. That's awesome. I think I saw him six times before six he passed times. away. Yeah. yeah, I probably – I could do a little math quickly to see how many times, but I bet about the same amount maybe, maybe yeah, more. I don't know. Just, I just, but, just love him. You know, so Mike, how old are you? I turned 50 earlier this year. OK. I'm 54. So we're in the same ballpark. Yes. But what the difference? I'm younger though. Yes. <laughs> <laughs> who looks younger though? Hey, yeah, 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 Jared, yeah, yeah, who looks yeah. Hey, fair enough, fair enough. <laughs> no, it's all right. We're both wearing hats. We're both wearing hats. I love how you had. I'm like, I got to come back at him. Yeah, 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 yeah. <laughs> That's Somebody the Massachusetts in you. <laughs> yeah, no. So, but here's the thing: the difference between 50 and 54 is I remember when Tom Petty's first album came out. Yeah. Totally. Yeah. You know. Yeah. His first album came out in 1976, right? Uh-huh. So I was like, what, uh, eight or something, and you were four, or something, yeah, right? Yep, yep. And that's a big difference, I think. Yep. So I got that on you. you no, know, I didn't know who Tom Petty was until I was So I got that older, on you. Yeah. <laughs> so anyways, um, okay, so Tom Petty's first album comes out, and first thing – I mean, a lot of people think American Girl was the first hit. But it was Breakdown in Boston anyways. And they played – and I was like, I don't know what this is, but it's pretty cool. Yeah. And back then, all I had was a little Panasonic cassette player and we would – you would – I don't know if you remember this. We would like listen to the radio and then if a song came on we liked, we'd quickly hit record mm-hmm. and you would record the song from the Absolutely. radio. That is how we – Trying to get it as clean as you could get it. Yeah, that's as, literally as how I found out about a lot of music. And so I remember doing that and hearing Breakdown and it was one of the first songs I probably tried to learn on the guitar too. And the Partisans played Breakdown. And um, then, you know – he put out the second album, Listen to Her Heart, and I Need to Know. We did I Need to Know in the band too. And I remember that I was sent away to this private school, seventh grade, and I had a miserable, miserable year. And then this girl, she came out with – she had a cassette player. I don't remember. And she said, listen to this. And it was um, Refugee. Right? Damn the torpedoes. Uh-huh. 1979, I'm going to guess. Something like that sounds about right. All right. I mean, it was literally like every new album we knew, you know, and um, I was like, this is amazing. And that girl's cute. And I'm too shy to say anything, you know, and it was just, it's just like one of those things where it hurt. Mm-hmm. Do you know what I mean? Like it literally hurt to listen to uh, this amazing song. With this cute girl who uh, I couldn't talk to. Yeah. I mean, and and that's like I think uh, went through the rest of my life. It was just this when beauty was in front of me, it was like this pain. You know what I mean? In fact, we used my friends and I used to eventually we called it. Yeah, I got the pain. You know, like when you had a crush on somebody like that. So goes on freshman year of high school comes out. Uh, the album was um, Hard Promises, uh-huh. right? And it was A Woman in Love and The Waiting, hmm. The Old King's Road. Those were the hits on that record, I think. And I'm the Night Watchman, that tune. And uh, I remember I won Hard Promises at the uh, Topsfield Fair by throwing a ring around a bottle. That nice. was awesome. 
And we were starting to now play these Tom Petty songs in the band. You know, they were they were just always a big part of the partisans, right? And um, but they were always associated with the pain too, because the girls would dance, but then I would be going home from the dance alone, right? Senior year, all of a sudden, like there was no older kids than us. Prettiest girl in school came over to me after the dance, the last scene, and says, want to walk me to my car? Mm. It's like, holy moly. I, I, I thought we were flirting because she was just like, thought I was funny, you know? Uh-huh. But nope. So we ended up dating for a little while, and I figured the safest way to ask her out on a date was to go to a concert she could not say no to, which was Tom Petty and the Heartbreakers at the Worcester Centrum in the summer of 1985. Amy Mann until Tuesday was the opening act. Okay. Yeah, you remember them? Yeah, yeah, yeah. They, and they were big in Boston, but that was they were a bar band, and so they this was huge. They were playing like in front of Tom Petty, and I I don't know if you remember the album was Southern Accents. Yep. And he came out with this huge Confederate flag too in that tour, which was like. It was, I think if he did that today, he would be. Oh yeah. Excommunicated. Yeah, right. I, that wouldn't age well. But no, in 1985, it was like. It was okay. I think there was a video for that too. Um, but the main thing about that was like all of a sudden Tom Petty was starting to work for me. Do you know what I mean? The pain was no longer quite there. It was like, oh, this this really pretty girl uh, uh, likes me. I, th- I thought, well, maybe I'm growing up a little bit. You know, Tom Petty's doing okay, right? <laughs> anyway, I kept listening to him. I kind of put up with the Jeff Lynne albums, wasn't crazy about the free fallen and stuff like that. Right. You know, it was okay. Although we did see him with Bob Dylan and the Grateful Dead in the summertime. He, I probably saw him another four times when he was playing with Dylan and, wow. you know, and stuff. Um, that would have been, what, 86, yeah. 87, something like that. But then I, I was... In this lonely period, uh, it was when I was playing with Flying Mice. I was on the road all the time and I would come home and we didn't have much money. So we were just eating junk in home. And he put out that album, uh, Wildflowers. And I thought this – I've been listening to him now for 15 years. Uh I was like, this is uh, his masterpiece. I just think it's fantastic. Every single song on it really good. And I listened to it a lot when I was living in this kind of crappy rental property. And and um, I just remember sitting there, probably laying on the floor, you know, with low lighting, just listening to this Tom Petty album and feeling lonely and <laughs> kind of sorry for myself and stuff. A few years later, though, um, 1995, I met my wife, Maria, she wasn't my wife at the time, but she liked our band and she started coming to see us. And um, she had wonderful taste in music. I don't know why she was seeing our band. but uh, and um, You covered good bands. Yeah. <laughs> no, and then um, we were getting married in 1997. And um, we said, well, what are you going to walk down the aisle to? You know? And I said – 
how would you feel about walking down the aisle to Wildflowers by Tom Petty, you know? And she said, I love that song. Sure. And um, so I had some friends. It wasn't like a recorded version. I have friends because they're all musicians, you know, and they played the thing, you know, while she came in. And, um, you know, if you listen to the words to that song, I'm sure you said you're a big Petty fan. Yeah, yeah. That song is such a a beautiful sentiment and it reminds me of Dylan's Forever Young because – and I think they may have both been written for daughters, you know. And now that I've got a daughter, it almost makes me tear up thinking about it because it's like you're wishing um, the best thing in the world for that person and what that is is freedom. So, you know, there's so many love songs where the person's trying to hang on yeah. to somebody and they and they can come across as syrupy and, and smothery almost, you know. And with Wildflowers, he's – you belong in a boat out at sea, like far away. You know, he's not even saying I need to be there with yeah. you, right? He's saying I want for you to feel – the, your wind in your own sails, you know, and when we got married, you know, Maria was and I, we were not, we were not real young. You were like 30 and she was 35, I think. And um, she had, she was a very independent person already. She did not need to be in a kind of a sticky, gluey, clingy relationship. And I remember we had a poem that was also read in the wedding and it was uh, by Rilke. And it talked about a wonderful, I can't remember the words of it, but it was like talking about how a relationship can grow strong with when there is space between the two people, you know? And, um, you know, for, I don't know, I just thought it was a beautiful sentiment to have Maria get married to a song that was uh, about freedom. Yeah. You know. You want to listen to it? Yeah. I love this song. It might be my favorite Tom Petty song. Yeah. And I just love the brightness of those guitars at the beginning. Oh, yeah. It's beautiful. Ah, this is John Shane's uh, second song on this week's episode of Three Song Stories. This is Wildflowers by Tom Petty off his 1994 album of the same name. You belong somewhere you feel free. You ever just play that? <laughs> with you know acoustically yourself and sing it to her yeah, no. you got your guitar <laughs> you want to hear it no I, I put the word the cable I mean I I played it before you know it's like uh, I think it's cable way up here or maybe it's even higher right how's it I used to know it oh I'm tuned in a different tuning can't do it <laughs> so, but uh, a few years ago, though, we, I played it. Um, there was um, when when Tom passed away in Chapel Hill. There was a big uh, tribute show to him, where a lot of the local musicians came, play, got together, and played Tom Petty songs. And so I was. They they had like these three different bands that were responsible for doing probably eight or ten songs a piece. And uh, so I sang two songs. I sang. Um, Another one off of that album, which I really like, is It's Good to Be King. Uh-huh. Yeah, I sang that one. And then I did Listen to Her Heart. Mm. Yeah. But a uh, good buddy of mine, uh, Barry Gray, who's a great singer-songwriter, he, he covered uh, – he did Wildflowers. 
and uh yeah it's nice um so after the flying mice and then the follow-up band that was called was called wake yeah wake was a band for two years um i was in the band with the drummer from flying mice and his wife and uh suffice it to say i I did not realize that you should not be in a band with a married couple. <laughs> uh, you learned that lesson once. <laughs> yeah, no, I mean, it, w- that band had a ton of talent. It was a really good band. We got a little bit of interest from Sugar Hill Records, um, but it was a little bit doomed. Yeah. Yeah. So when you go out and suddenly say, I'm going to be a solo artist, what was that like? Like, you know, psychologically uh, kind well, of. Well, you know? I, I had to say, well – I got to use my own name because I'm not going to start over again with another band name because when we started Wake, we thought people who used to come see Flying Mice would all just know that we were in this new band, you know. But it's like you got to – each new band name has got to like a – takes a while to get it off the ground. So I figured, okay, I use my own name and I'll start it from the bottom again, you know. And uh, I decided I wasn't going to play rock clubs. I was kind of tired of that. And I just started playing coffee shops. And um, and back then, this is around uh, the late 90s, beginning of 2000 or whatever. And, and um, there was these, uh, what were the Borders bookshops? Mm-hmm. They, they had coffee shops that would pay you to play in them oh. and they would buy your CDs and then put it out so people could buy it from them. And they weren't even <laughs> they, they weren't even doing them in consignment. They would be like, oh, you're playing here? Oh, let, let's buy 20 CDs. Well, that's a great deal for like, someone like you. Totally. Yeah. That's, and that's – yeah. So I, I played a, a bunch of these little gigs um, trying to figure out which of my songs would work as one person, you know? Mm-hmm. Um, and songs that had a lot of harmony, vocal harmonies that might have been great, may not be so super for one person. Mm-hmm. And what I ended up doing was just really leaning back into my fingerstyle guitar playing. Because um, I figure if you're going to be a solo guitar player, singer, songwriter, you need to have a second voice that you can do. Some people do that with their harmonica around their neck or whatever. And uh, some people just become much better finger pickers. You know, And my favorite people like that, like Richard Thompson or um, Yorma Kalkinen or I don't know, who's another great one? Bruce Coburn, you know, like these guys can play the guitar and it's, that's all you need, you know? Yeah. So that's what I set off to do. And I remembered that at a coffee shop, this one person said to me, um, John, you got to decide if you're going to be like a guitar player or a songwriter. Hmm. I was like, that was all I needed to hear. I was like, no, I don't. <laughs> I try to do both. Um, so, yeah, I just started to kind of slowly get that together. And then FJ kind of showed back up in my life. Like uh, we had kind of drifted apart. The for partisan's bass player. Exactly. The partisan's <laughs> bass player. You know, he shows back up. And he had been playing rockabilly and country music and oh. rock stuff all around Boston while I was in North Carolina. And all of a sudden I was like, this guy's got serious bass chops now. And um, we just, you know, I convinced him to move to North Carolina. We've been playing together ever since. How many albums have you put out? Uh, at this point, how many have I put out? I don't know. I probably have about 10, 10 under my own name maybe and then a couple with FJ, one with uh, Joe Newberry who's a, another singer-songwriter from our area, more of a banjo kind of Americana side of things. And then um, we did a live album. So I, I don't know. It's probably <laughs> like 15, 16 albums, something like that. How many guitars do you own? 
Um, I'm not as bad as some people I know. <laughs> what does that mean? <laughs> <laughs> well, you know, there's this thing called gas, right? Guitar acquisition syndrome. Oh, yeah, yeah, you yeah. Know, and it is real, folks. Um, so if you'd like to send money to the gas uh, so you're agency, the just send it to me. Here. <laughs> uh, no, uh, no, I mean, at this point, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to say like 10 or do you just travel with the or, one? No, no. Or I'm just, <laughs> like, no. Um, I usually bring with me um, 10, this, this Gibson. 15? I, I, I only travel with a couple guitars. I bring this Gibson that I got with me, and I, I usually bring a National Resonator with me. Um, but that I like left at FJ's studio after a session the night before I left on this tour. Oh, and so I you don't like, have it with you. Uh, yeah, so I got just the one guitar. But um, I still have my old Strat. I had another Strat that was a really valuable one. It was like 1965 Strat, and I sold that and bought a 12-string guitar, a Martin 12-string, and a mandolin, and an, from a Gibson mandolin and an amp. And then I took my family to Oaxaca. So it was like – I don't really miss that guitar. <laughs> yeah, yeah you, got your, you got your money's worth out of that yeah, guitar. No, but I, I play – electric and acoustic on a lot of people's records because these days especially with covid we i did more producing of other people's music um last year than i did touring so that must be fun yeah no it's awesome Uh, creative juices it's yeah it's so great to work with people on their songs and you know watch them kind of develop the tune from the first thing they play for me to then, you know, finally getting into the studio with it and getting like the right guests on it to play certain instruments and things. And we'll sometimes we'll write a cello part or, you know, it's like, it's pretty creative. So you had a music book published by Mel Bay Books. Yeah. As a guitarist. I mean, they've been putting out books since 1948. I looked it up. Yep. What that must be like for you. It's awesome <laughs> because uh, I learned on a Mel Bay, Mel Bay guitar book as a lot of people I don't people even did. like know guitar well enough to know and I saw that and I'm like, I bet that's cool for him. Yeah. You know, it's kind of a full circle thing to think that I could actually be um, – you know, writing for Mel Bay now. And of course, now that my foot's in the door, I'm already thinking about what's the next book, right? Um, Explain to the listeners what a Mel Bay book is. This is like yeah. before the internet when you wanted to find yeah. songs. Yeah, well, Mel Bay has been publishing these these instructional books and song books and things. Um, they are like the largest um, one of these music publishers, you know, as far as uh, books go, I think. And um, they're based in Missouri, I think, and still family owned you know so like my lawyer when she was trying to get the deal she was like talking about oh yeah well mr bay says uh, he's interested <laughs> you know like mel bay's kid runs it wow you know and um they sold 20 million copies of the first the guitar one book that's how big of a company that is and um so you know what I did my music book is the music of W C Handy and it's fingerstyle guitar and it's pretty complex stuff. So it, you know I'm I don't have any um I don't expect it to sell millions of copies but it does lend a certain amount of status yep. to be on that. So um a couple of weeks ago I got an email out of the blue from the Library of Congress and they were like We'd like you to do an essay, a scholarly essay um, for our website about the 1914 recording Victor military band of the Memphis Blues by W.C. Handy. 
I was like, wow, like the only reason they would have asked me is because I that uh-huh. book, right? Yeah. So that's not just a coincidence. <laughs> yeah, no. So I did it. And then we called up Acoustic Guitar Magazine and said, I have this book coming out. Would you like to do an article? And they were like, sure. So I just like filmed a video and wrote an article for them that that's coming out. So it's it's opening doors. That's know? cool. Yeah. Um, okay, it's time for your third song. Yes. And this one's a different uh, yes. course of a different color. Can we even call it a song? I don't know. I, I you don't tell me. Know. I don't know. So it's interesting, you know, like uh, I, I, it's not that I'm really well known, but I have been kind of in the public eye for most of my adult life. And I, I've never really talked about growing up Jewish, you know. Um, and I guess probably that's because like I'm not very religious, you know. Um, but I did grow up, you know, in the temple going to um, Hebrew school and I got bar mitzvahed and did – everything I was supposed to do up to a certain age, right? But it, it's it's interesting because like um, the, the reform movement uh, in Judaism was designed really to not be so other compared to uh, mainstream Christianity. You know, a lot about the services were done in English and um, it was all about kind of assimilation. You know, I think let's fit in and try not to get killed anymore kind of a thing, you know. Um, But part of what ended up happening in that – and I can only speak for myself because I know a lot of other people have completely different experiences – is that in the the synagogue, like I just didn't get a whole lot of spiritual feeling out of it. You know, I was not that moved most of the time and – I would have liked to have been, you know, um, but I didn't uh, – whatever it was, it just like it didn't grab me that much. But there was this – there's a holiday though and to call it a holiday is not really – you don't think about it as a holiday in American terms. But it's the, the high holidays at the – it happens – it's coming up soon in fact, I believe. Rosh Hashanah, maybe this weekend, which shows – you know, my level of religiosity. <laughs> yeah, yeah. But uh, Rosh Hashanah is the, the new year. And then I think 10 days after that is Yom Kippur. And some people say Yom Kippur. Um, but we in, in Massachusetts, we said Yom Kippur. And that is called the Day of Atonement. And it's a really serious day. And so to call it a holiday is weird because you fast. You don't eat. And we would walk to the temple that day too from our from our house. And you would get there and all the people you knew were dressed in their jackets and ties, but they weren't smiling. You know, they looked at you. It was like the Secret Service or something was there. You know, it was like keep it to yourself, whatever you're thinking. And my brother and I who were cut-ups and, you know, could barely sit still during these services, we would have a tough time at this service. But they always sang this one song at Yom Kippur and it was – it sounded like it came straight out of the old world. It's called Avinu Malkenu. And there are are several different melodies for it 
And I can't remember. I don't know which one you guys are going to play. I got them both. You got them both. You I think get that's, to choose now which yeah, we play. Yeah, I, I think it's – I think that would be – Great to play one of them and then a little bit of the other one just to hear the two of them. Well, let's listen because, to one together and then afterwards we'll play a little yeah, bit of the other one. Because, you know, it's interesting. It, we had at our temple, there was a cantor who would come and he had a baritone voice. And when he sang Avinu Malkenu, he would sing it by himself. And you just sat there and you were just transported. It's like, Okay, maybe there is a God. You know, something's going on here. Um, and the other version of a Vinu Malkano is one that the whole congregation would sing. And it was also really moving. You know, now if I spoke Hebrew, I could tell you what it means, I believe. But I think it's some, Malkano is like our father or something or our king. Um. And it's basically asking to be forgiven, you know, and, and to be to atone on this holiday. So it's a very serious holiday. And um, I don't know, it was like the day of the year where we had to straighten up and fly right, you mm. know. And um, it's, it's just a haunting melody, you know. And being Jewish or not being Jewish, it's I think anybody would be moved by it. So you want to play the one that's got the, um, it's like the, the slow one with the cantor and the two women that are also singing? So the one that's the congregation version? No, no, the one that's the cantor the, version. The solo version. The soloist, yeah. Okay. Um, it's just absolutely beautiful. I found this online, um, and it's it was from a large synagogue in New York, I think. All right, let's listen to it. It's, uh, say it again, Aveno Melkenu? Um yeah, Avinu Malkenu. Um, this is uh, John Shane's third and final song here on Three Song Stories. In our synagogue, they did not have the full choir. That's a spectacular, yeah, spectacular yeah. thing there with the cello. And I mean, um, the video is worth watching to watch them do that. They did it, they recorded it live, and they. Synagogue, um, it's just so powerful to me. I don't, I don't. It's hard to describe. Uh, it's it definitely makes me feel like, please forgive me. <laughs> you know, like forgive me for saying that I wasn't very religious or that I wasn't very, you know, moved or whatever. It's like it just is. You know, somebody's watching. You know. you know, you said sort of at the time you were having trouble sitting still, you were a troublemaking kid, blah, blah, blah. Um, would your – whatever, how old you, were you there, 14, something like that when you were listening, you know, when you were a kid? Oh, younger, no, I mean younger? you were little kids, little you know, kids. five years old, whatever, you know, six, ten, whatever. You know, would you have even dreamed at the time that, you know, all these years later that song and those moments would have imprinted on you deeply enough that you would bring it up for this kind of conversation? No, I don't think we know have any clue. When Makes you realize what might be really deep to you when you don't realize it. It it shows how big things are to a child, right? Yeah. You know, um, my daughter is 20 now and um, it's not so long ago that she was – that little child, you know, and you get, you think about like the things that you present to your children, 
how how will they be remembered? Because they're going to have um, the memory may be much larger. That you know you you do something that might have been off the cuff, you yeah. know, that you don't think much about, but it might end up being one of the most important memories for this child. Um, you know, so there are things that you're not given choices about as a children as children, you know, and. Um, as a parent myself, like we don't – we're all just winging it. We don't know what is going to be the best thing to do at a given moment. I mean a lot of us can take a good example from, well, my parents did this so that must be must be a pretty good idea. But then there's a lot of other parents who pass their craziness along too. You know, So at some point you got to think for yourself as a, as a parent and as an adult, uh, does it feel right? Yeah. You know, I hope this is – Hope I'm giving the kid the right memories. Right? Yeah, exactly. And it's you know what I've learned from being a parent is is that you know you got to just be aware that every moment might be that important. That's right. And the simplest example for me has always been driving. Like you know what, your kid's going to drive like you drive, whether you teach them how to drive or not. You swearing know what I mean? swearing like if, at everybody who if goes they by. sit in the back seat of your car for 15 years and you're not teaching them anything but just demonstrating. That's what they're going to be like, and that's a metaphor for a lot of things. Yeah, no, it's it's true. I can remember though when my daughter was uh, in the car little. Yeah, you know she'd be in the back seat, right? You know, and I'd kind of keep the conversation going, right? Because they were they remember the the car seats they faced the other direction yeah, too. Yeah, they had the double mirror. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> so I'd keep the conversation going, and we'd be we'd listen to like some jazz on the radio, and I'd say, "What instruments do you hear?" Right now, you know, we just kind of like play these games, you know, and uh, well, they're good memories for me. I hope I remember her, looking you know. in the back seat at my daughter in a car seat saying to her, you're going to talk someday. You're going to talk to me someday. <laughs> How old is your daughter? <laughs> She's 17. Oh, yeah. So, yeah. 17 yeah, good. It's a good age if she's past his her. Her stuff, you know. Yeah, she's a theater kid and doing good. So oh, all is well. Is she off to college next? Uh, yeah, fantastic. Yeah, absolutely. She already know she's, where she's, she's going. She's applying now. She's just started that process. Yeah, yeah. Anyway. It's it's quite something, especially when you uh, get that first bill for it. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> well, I'm just putting that out of my mind for now. Yeah. Um, okay, you ready for a speed round? Sure. We're gonna we're gonna close this thing out with a speed round. Okay. Do you have a nickname over the course of your life that you would be willing to share? Uh. Well, John is a nickname for Jonathan, actually. Uh, but yeah, no, Shano. Shano. Yeah. No. Okay. Karaoke. I I don't do karaoke. A lot of musicians don't. You know, do it just doesn't have a lot of um, interest to me because, like, if I want to figure out some song, I can pick up the guitar and figure it out and sing it. Right. Yeah. So. If you were a championship wrestler, what music would you enter the arena on? Ooh, you know, so we have a great minor league baseball team in Durham, the Durham Bulls, and uh, which is the Rays um, team, you know, and uh, they always play the guys in with some music. And you know? we have often thought, what would be the thing to play when you come to the plate? Which I guess is that the same as sure that'll what work. We pumps can, you up for the wrestling. Yeah. I think it would be War Pigs by Black Sabbath. Oh, okay. Um, If you were a cocktail or drink of some kind that was a distilled John Shane, what Uh, would it be? Distilled John Shane. Maybe a mezcal. Yeah? Yeah, kind of smoky, a little bit of sourness to it as well, you know? Okay. Have you had mezcal? Oh, yeah. 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 I'm I'm not super familiar, but I'm familiar. It's like scotch 
But it's a tequila. Yeah, it's yeah. like, yeah, exactly. Yeah. Um, if you had to guess, what do you would you say is the song you've listened to the most times in your life? Wow. The song that I've listened to the most times in my life could be maybe one of my own that I've played a lot of songs a lot of times. Could be Getaway Car, something like that by me. But if it was something that was on the radio, I know it's a speed round, but I, I, that is a hard question. Well, you know, we don't expect you to know the actual What answer. could it be? Maybe <laughs> Satisfaction by the Rolling Stones? Okay. Uh, it could be. I don't know. Um, song you wish you can hear again for the first time? Stairway to Heaven. Album you wish you can hear again for the first time? Oh, wow. The very first time. Pink Floyd, The Wall. Yeah. <laughs> um, if you could broadcast a song into the head of every person on the planet simultaneously, which song would you provide them? Is that a thing? No, it's, no, this okay. is where we, yeah, we're yeah. living in the land of make believe. Gotcha. I think um, that, I think you're the first person to ever ask. Yeah, that. <laughs> that, you're like, I, do I get to do that? Is that <laughs> we can do that right now? Broadcast a song into the yeah, mind. You're creating a global moment of music uh, with a song. Would it, it would wake up half the people. Absolutely, um, global collective moment. Um, it could be one of your songs. We've had musicians. I wouldn't do that. Like Imagine that the promotion. Before. Yeah, I wouldn't do that. <laughs> no, because you remember when you two like. Put out that yeah, they forced thing. it onto everybody. It was like, yeah, terrible, whatever. terrible idea. No, no, it's like, um, I don't know. You know, that's a hard question. That is a really hard question. And luckily, we're editing this, so it'll seem like I had the answer immediately. Pretty much, yeah. Uh, Old Man by Neil Young. Great answer. Came right off the top of your head. <laughs> yeah, right. <laughs> um, what would your fourteen-year-old self think of who you are with us today? Fourteen-year-old. John was even more cynical than 54-year-old John. But I think he would find it pretty pretty cool that they were – he was like in a radio station talking and that people actually gave a <laughs> what he said. You know, I mean uh, I'm going to say that 14-year-old John would have uh, had a conversation with this guy after the show. Yeah. Well, I'm glad it, it took us an hour, but we got the Boston out of you or the, the Massachusetts out of you there. Oh, did I swear? Yeah, you didn't oh. even know it. It's a beautiful thing. Oh, but, you know, they don't know which word you used. You might have said stinker. Stinker. <laughs> stinker. Stinker. Okay, yeah. uh, okay, John, it's time for you to recommend your three people. Okay. So I thought about this, and there are three people who I think would be great guests for you. Um, number one is Rob Turner who is an old friend, goes back all the way to high school, and he has his own podcast. Okay. Yep. Um, he has several podcasts going right now. Um, but um, he's in Atlanta. And because he is a host and asks a lot of questions, I think he would be a fantastic Oh, yeah. Guest. And if he makes podcasts, then he'll have the technology for us to make this happen remotely super easily. So Yes, yes. And he would if, – if we called him up, uh, he, would, he would love to do it. And, he's, yeah. and the other thing is music is his, um, his whole life. He, he has devoted his whole life to music, not as a musician. As somebody who goes to see shows. Huh. You know how you said you saw Tom Petty six times yeah. and it was the most? Yeah. I bet he has seen Tom Petty 40 times, but he's like seen the Grateful Dead 400 right. times. Right. 40 isn't even in his top 10. Oh, yeah. He, yeah. He, he's like, if you said, how many times have you seen Van Morrison? He'll say, oh, 20 times. Branford Marcellus, 16 times. You know, it's like, I mean, he just, yeah. 
lives he was, for it. He and so to choose songs to tell stories by, he, he'd be fantastic. Cool. Yeah. Okay. Number two is a singer-songwriter who I've had the good fortune to be friends with and work with in the studio. Her name is Penny Sandbeck, and she lives in Newport News, Virginia. And she grew up in the South, but she spent a lot of time like in England and living up north. And her accent still is very Southern, uh, <laughs> but her worldview is quite worldly. And um, – I think she would be a fascinating person to to have the stories go along with the songs. Okay. She's just a lot of fun. And the third person, I'm going to give a shout out to my buddy FJ, FJ Ventry, who lives in Chapel Hill and owns the studio, Good Luck Studio, where we produce other artists and ourselves. Um, FJ uh, has a million stories and he loves music just as much as I do. And I guarantee you his songs – song choices will not be – end up being the same. Well, do your best to you know, really help us get in touch with them because I'm going to tell them to all. Get, great. I want to I get them on and, um, and you've done it. You're, yep. You've made it through the end here. OK. A weird little wild ride. Do you have any final thoughts you want to give us? Nope, no, no. I had a blast. I hope you guys uh, didn't mind me going over our time a little bit. No, but, uh, that's what we're here for. Yeah, no. Uh, love it. Can't wait to hear it. Thanks for doing it. Hope your shows with the ACMA go great. Thank you very much. I appreciate it. Hey there. This is normally where the parting tune starts playing, but this week we're going to hand it off to John, and I want you to hear his song in its entirety, so bear with me for a second while I get through these credits. We make three song stories in the studios of WGCU Public Radio on the campus of Florida Gulf Coast University in Fort Myers, Florida. Richard Chinqui is co-creator and producer. Tara Calligan is online content producer and host. Jared the Intern Gonzalez is production assistant. Chris Duffus is executive producer, and our theme song was made by Dave 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 Cowan and Stick Martin at Monkey House Studio in St. Pete. Remember, if you'd like to hear a slightly shorter version of this conversation, but one that has long versions of the songs, go to wgcu.org, click the Listen tab at the top of the page. And now for the parting tune, prior to recording with us, John sat down with WGCU's John Davis on Gulf Coast Life Arts Edition and played some tunes, so we're plucking one of those to end with today. Keep listening. I'm going to play, you know, a couple songs off of the latest record that I have put out. And um, the last few albums have been duet recordings with F.J. Ventry, who's my buddy and partner. We have been playing music together since we were in high school. Yeah, I he's, was really shocked when I read that. Yeah, he's a great upright bass player, and he owns that studio in, in Chapel Hill, too. And uh, he's a great engineer. And uh, we wrote a bunch of songs during the pandemic and put it out because we weren't going to wait anyway. And uh, this one's called Wood Smoke, and I think it kind of speaks to the uh, feeling of uh, the loneliness of those early days of the pandemic. I'd like to sit again by a campfire with you. Somewhere in the big sky night Watching satellites Pass each other by Neath a thousand million Winking lights Pass the bottle Pass the bottle round 
How did we ever end up here? I got a little something in my eye It always happens when the sparks begin to fly There's a glowing in the cinders And the fire will soon be high Must be the wood smoke gone to my head Pass the bottle, pass the bottle round How did we ever end up here? Play a little while on your fiddle if you would I'd give to hear that fiddle now Play a little while on your fiddle If you would what I'd give What I'd give Pass the bottle, pass the bottle round How did we ever end up here? Next time on Three Song Stories. I hope you don't want me to sing. <laughs>